We're going to preface our discussion with the reading that's in the bulletin there, uh, but today we are going to, thank you, we're going to be looking at, um, I get to the passage myself, um, 1 Kings chapter 18, uh, which is the story of Elijah. So you might want to put a thumb in 1 Kings chapter 18, and uh, we're going to start with 1 Kings 16. Who, uh, which kind of leads us into this story. Okay. These are the words of God. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him, And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than any of the kings of Israel who were before him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for gathering us together to worship. We thank you for uh, giving us this time to be instructed by you from your word. pray that you would help me to get out of the way and that you would help us to hear what you are seeing, saying to the church, that you'd give us seeing eyes and hearing ears, uh, that you would build us up in faith so that we might be better equipped to serve you as a result of this message. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so last week we finished up the story of David and Goliath, and we said there that David proved what a true king looked like, a a righteous king, a real king, as opposed to Saul, who cowered among the Israelites when opposition arose. Well, David goes out after this time, and he wins all sorts of battles for Israel, and he uh, reinstitutes proper worship in Jerusalem at that time. And uh, before he dies, God makes a promise to him that one of his sons will sit on his throne and reign forever and ever. Okay, And that promise first comes to fruition in the life of Solomon. Uh, Solomon builds a house for the Lord to dwell in in Jerusalem, and it's much more glorious and majestic than the tabernacle had ever been. Uh, Israel experiences rest from their enemies under Solomon's kingship, and the Israelites become the head of the nations. Uh, They come to the height of their glory underneath of Solomon, just as God had promised. But sadly enough, Solomon disobeys the commandments of the Lord, and he ends up in idolatry. And as is usually the case, as goes the leadership, so goes the people, and it isn't before long after Solomon dies, actually right after, that the nation is split into two. Uh, And the nation goes, uh, you have two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, and the northern kingdom goes into even greater idolatries at the leadership of Jeroboam. And within 60 years, Baalism is being made the state religion in Israel, Uh, Ahab and his pagan wife Jezebel uh, 
have built a house for the God of Baal. And as we read, uh, Ahab does more to provoke the God of Israel than any king before him. And this brings us to the ministries of Elijah and Elisha. Elijah and Elisha come on the scene to call the people back to faith in the one true God, Yahweh, and to defeat the God of the new Israelite religion, Baal. And the stories of these two prophets come to us uh, right in the middle of the book of Kings, uh, in the middle of this book in chapter 18. And in these books, in First and Second Kings, the people have abandoned the law of God and are serving Baal. And the question is, will they repent at the preaching of the prophets? Uh, the job of the prophets is to call the people back to obedience to God's word. And they are sort of covenant lawyers, as it were. They're reminding people of God and what he has said, and they are calling them back to faithfulness to him. And if the people obey the words of the prophets, uh, they will be blessed, and if they do not, they will be cursed. Now again, we have to get the context before us. Uh, The people are worshiping Baal. And in the ancient Near East, Baal was the storm god, and his blessings came uh, from the rain, and his cursings came from the storm. If, If it rained, the people would have water to drink, they would have water for their crops, and he would send cursings on them uh, through lightning bolts or fire from heaven and cause droughts and these sort of things. So the people are depending on Baal uh, for, God, uh, for food and water. And so guess what Elijah does as soon as he comes on the scene? He runs right up to King Ahab and he says, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And that is, he's saying, essentially, we'll see whose God is the Lord. You, you think that Baal is the Lord. Well, guess what? No more rain for three and a half years. And for three and a half years, the economy is basically stru- uh, strangled. Um, the people essentially have to struggle just to survive. And as you would imagine, this would put pressure on the king and on the prophets of Baal to do something about it. They're wondering why they don't just cry out to Baal and ask him to give us some rain as he has done in the past, and that is because Baal is no god at all, and that is what Elijah sets out to prove in our story today. So if you look in 1 Kings 18, we're going to start in verse 17, and we'll go through the whole story. If you start there in verse 17, we'll see this is where Ahab sees Elijah for the first time after he pronounces the drought three and a half years prior. And he says, is that you, O troubler of Israel? Chapter 18, verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? Now this term is first used back in the book of Joshua to refer to a man named Achan who caused all kinds of trouble for Israel. And he did some things that were worthy of a capital offense in Israel. And so he was put to death. And here, King Ahab is applying this phrase or this title to Elijah. So what is he saying? He's saying, you're the one who's been causing all this trouble in Israel. It's your fault that we have been going through this drought 
all this time, and therefore he would be worthy of death. Now, in a sense, what, what he says is true. It is at the word of Elijah that there's no rain in Israel, but the reason that he even spoke the word in the first place is because they had abandoned the Lord, and they were now worshiping Baal. And so Elijah turns it right back around on him and says, no, you're the troubler in Israel. It's your fault that all these things are happening. Look at verse 18. He says, and he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. So in all reality, Ahab and those who worship Baal are worthy of death, since they have committed idolatry in the land which is a capital offense. Look at verse 19. Verse 19, we read, Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. So what does Elijah do here? He, he calls a worship service, right? He says, get all the prophets of Baal together, and get Israel together, and we're going to worship, right? And Elijah here is putting himself in, the con- in a contest with the prophets of Baal. The contest is essentially going to be used to determine who is God. Is it Yahweh or is it Baal? And by the way, all the prophets of Baal and Asherah at this meeting are said to eat at Jezebel's table. Uh, This means that they are being supported by Jezebel. Uh, They are being supported by the state. Again, Baalism has become the state religion at this time, and the entire political and religious structure of the day is being called to account here by Elijah. In verses 20 and 21, uh, we read, so, ah- uh, so Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. <clears throat> now, you've got to imagine uh, the scene here. There are Thousands of people here who are gathered at this event, possibly tens of thousands, says all Israel. It doesn't tell us who all came. But there's a lot of people, and the text says Elijah draws near, and he begins to confront them all. So this is a huge event. Uh, And he says, how long will you go on limping between two opinions? Today we would say, why are you straddling the fence? You know, you can't sit on the fence like that. you got to either be in or out. You can't have it one way you got to have it one way or the other. There's no middle road. So immediately, what does Elijah do? He confronts their sin. He, be, he begins to call out their sin. They're a bunch of pluralists. And a pluralist is just a person who thinks that you can serve many gods. right? So they think that they can serve more than one god. They can have a little Baal. They can have a little Asherah. They can have a little Yahweh. And Elijah says, no, you can't have it both ways. Uh, We know the first commandment tells us that you shall have no other gods before me, right? And then later God says that you shall worship the Lord your God with your whole heart. So your allegiance can't be divided between two different gods. You just, you can't do it. It's it's either Yahweh, uh, with Yahweh it's either all or none. And the text says they did not answer him a word. (laughs) They knew they were guilty, right? They don't say anything when he confronts them like this. In uh, verses 22 and 24, Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I, only am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. 
Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire on it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. You call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. So Elijah says, we're going to get two altars and two bulls. One altar and one bull for the prophets of Baal. One altar and one bull for the altar of Yahweh. And says, we'll set up these altars, but don't put any fire to them. The God who answers by fire is God indeed. Right? And so he tells the prophets of Baal, you go first. They set up their altar with their bull. You go first. Right? Verse 26, uh, we read this. Uh, and they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal, uh, Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered, and they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he's relieved himself, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. So I love this verse after several hours of them going on like this. Elijah draws near and he begins to mock them. He says, where is your God at? Maybe he's musing somewhere. Maybe he's in the bathroom. Maybe if you cry a little bit louder, he can hear you. Maybe, maybe he went for a walk or, or he fell asleep. He's taking a nap. If he's a god, cry a little bit louder and he'll hear you. Right? That's in common parlance essentially what he's saying. And they would uh, often dance in these weird trances uh, like this and offer up these ecstatic utterances to their god and cut themselves and this fashion that we see here is weird stuff that they're doing to try to get their God to pay attention to them. Uh, but the text ends with the emphasis on the fact that there was no answer whatsoever from Baal. They do it all the way to the time of the evening sacrifice, which at this time would have been late in the afternoon, and still no answer. It says no one answered, no one paid attention. Twice the writer mentions the fact that uh, there was no answer from their God here. And up in verse 26, he says essentially the same thing. Why is this? Well, because in the contest, it is the God who answers, right? It is the God who answers who is the true God indeed. And as we'll see, it is Elijah whom God answers. Look at verses 30 through 35. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took tw- twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stone he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. He said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. So the first thing that I want you to notice here is that Elijah calls all the people together for a covenant renewal 
ceremony. He rebuilds the altar of the Lord, and he uses 12 stones to rebuild it, which represent the 12 tribes of Israel. This is the same thing that Moses does after the children of Israel come out of Egypt and they're worshiping the golden calf. He builds an altar like this uh, to, so that the uh, people may renew covenant with God. And here, Elijah is doing the same thing. He's calling people back to worship the true God in the right way. So that's first, okay? Second, he drenches the sacrifice, the altar, and this ditch that is dug out around the altar. Now, why does he do this? Um, well, he doesn't want them thinking that he rigged the altar. <laughs> if you, if it's a possible possibility that if he lit a small fire at the bottom of the altar and then built it around, they wouldn't see it at first, and then all of a sudden it would break out, and they'd say, "Oh, the deity did it." Um, uh, so there will be none of that after this. The 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 bowl is uh, drenched. The the altar is drenched. There's even a ditch that's surrounding the thing that is full of uh, water. And in verses. 36 through 39, it says that the fire came out at the time of the offering of the oblation. Look at verse 36. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook of Kishon and slaughtered, slaughtered them there. So it says that fire came out during the time of the offering or of the oblation, as I said uh, this would have been the evening sacrifice. The Israelites had two sacrifices that were offered up by the priest for them, one in the morning and one at the evening. And here God comes during that time of the evening sacrifice, which would have happened late in the afternoon at this point. And he sends fire down as an acceptance of, his, uh, of the offering that was made there, and while at the same time proving that he is God and Baal is not, right? Because that's the contest. Whoever's God sends fire down. And... As I said, again, it's the God who answers by fire. And Elijah says, answer me, O Lord, answer me, and he does, right? It's the God who answers. God proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is Baal, or excuse me, that he is Lord and Baal is not. If Baal controlled the storm, he could have sent down a firebolt out of heaven to start this fire on the altar and consume the sacrifice, as Yahweh does here, but he does not because he cannot because he's no God at all. And that's the point. And with this sign, the people uh, repent and turn back to the Lord. They say, the Lord, he is God. Uh, The Lord, he is God. That is, uh, Yahweh, he is God. Yahweh, he is God. They're acknowledging who the true God is, once again. And uh, we see their conversion with the response that they give in verse 40. I'll read it again. And Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook of Kishon and slaughtered them there. Um, here they obey the voice of the prophet and they seize the false prophets. Uh, and Elijah takes them and he slaughters them just as Israel ha- should have done from the very start. Um, and again, uh, leading men uh, to worship false gods or worshiping false gods in Israel was a capital, uh, capital crime. That's what the, the uh, Baalites are doing and the prophets of Baal. All right. That's the story. Now, what can we... 
what, what can we learn from the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal? Friends, in Elijah's day, he was causing all kinds of trouble in Israel. In all, actual, in all actuality, the trouble was self-inflicted because uh, Israel had abandoned the Lord and they were worshiping idols. But for those who reject the God of the Bible, the person who calls them back to that God, who calls them to account, is a real troubler indeed. And why is this? Well, because they are reminding them of the God who created them and the God that they have an obligation to. They're reminding them of the God with whom they have to do. And friends, it's no different in the day in uh, which we are living. I pray to God that uh, he would make some of you uh, troublemakers, but uh, not just troublemakers for the sake of making trouble, but godly troublemakers, those who make trouble for the sake of righteousness. And trust me, if you stand up in the day in which we are living today for what is right and what is good in the sight of God, you will be labeled a troublemaker. You will be. It's just the way it is. Each one of us has a sphere of influence in which we live and and we work in the world, and it is there that you are to make trouble. And as I've said, I don't want anybody making trouble just for trouble's sake, but to make trouble for righteousness' sake. Let's say that you're on the city council here in Princeville, and uh, the board is talking about bringing a gentleman's club here to town, right? And uh, everybody on the board is positive about it. They're talking about the benefits of bringing this thing here to our town and all the revenue that it's going to generate and all of the people that will come as a result. And everybody's positive about it. And it's then when you are to stand up and make some trouble. And if you're against that board and when everybody else is positive about this thing. They all think that it's a good idea. Trust me, they are going to label you a troublemaker. You will be a troublemaker. But you will be a godly troublemaker and God will honor it. And we can move this application into any uh, area of our lives. Let's say that you work down there at the factory and you know some people who, uh, who like to come in after hours and load their truck up with merchandise. And you know about it. Right? Or let's say you run with a group of friends at school who decides it's a good idea to go down there to the park and graffiti one of the walls. Or maybe it's your family that you get together with on Christmas and Easter who's always talking about the moral things that are happening in our society and how that they are a good thing for our culture. Friends, it's then that you are to stand up. It's then that you are to become a godly troublemaker. And how about some of the issues of our day? It it seems like the entire culture has gone in another direction. They are taking big bites out of this pluralistic, poisonous apple that basically says, all all religions have something good to offer. There's something good in every one of them. They've got a grain of truth, and we should take a little bit from each, and if you take all of them together, then you'll get to the truth. There's no ultimate truth, though. It's just found in all of these different truths. And of course, Christianity is out of the race because it's way too exclusive, right? You can say that Jesus is a way, but you cannot say that Jesus is the way. Uh, It's okay to be a Christian just as long as you're willing to keep your mouth shut and to pay homage to the gods of our day. This is to say it's okay to be a Christian uh, if you're willing to offer a little incense to Baal. That's to say, it's okay to be a Christian, you just can't be exclusively Christian. 
you've got to add a little liberalism to your Christianity. You've, you've got to have a little, you've got to be accepting and you've got to be tolerant. You have to have an open mind and an open heart to the idea that there are other religions out there that have truth to them. You've got to be willing to explore them. You can't say that there's only one way, that there's one truth. And if you do, the tolerance police of our day are going to come after you. Promise you that. And you know, it's at this moment that someone needs to stand up and say the king has no clothes on. That is, you are to expose the utter absurdity and inconsistency of their argument. The bailists of our day are saying the same thing that they did in the days of Elijah. It's okay to have a little Yahweh, a little Baal. You just can't exclusively have Yahweh. You can't do that. And that's when a godly troublemaker needs to stand up and come along and say, who says? Who says? How do you know that all religions have some truth in them and that if we put them all together that we'll get to the right place in the end anyway? How do you know this? Do you have some sort of objective standard that you're appealing to? Do you have some sort of holy book that tells you these things? Wait a minute, is the Baalist of our day saying that there is one way to know truth and that is by accepting a little bit of everyone's religion or preference? Some of you may see the inconsistency there. So basically, they're saying the same thing that we are about their holy book, but they're just saying it all in the name of acceptance. They have no ultimate standard that they are appealing to. They're just saying it. They're just saying it because we said it. They have no justification, no foundation for these things. They just say it. The pluralistic argument implodes on itself because it's utterly impossible to be uncompromisingly pluralistic or to be consistently pluralistic. You can't do it, but they claim that's what we need to be. Uh, Some have used a mountain climbing analogy to explain this. They say that it's like everybody's climbing a mountain, right? And everybody's climbing this mountain from different sides, but nevertheless, everybody is headed to the top of this mountain. This is to say the guy who's climbing the mountain from the east side has a different perspective than the guy who's climbing the mountain from the west side, but they're all headed to the top of that mountain either way. And what we need to do at that point is step back and say, how do you know that? How do you know it's a mountain? How do you know there are different people climbing this mountain? How do you know that they're climbing it from different sides? How do you know that they're all headed to the top of this mountain? Do you have some sort of ultimate perspective on the whole mountain climbing scene that none of the rest of us have? You say, they're, they're saying the same thing we are. They're saying that they have an exclusive insight into the way this thing works. But yet they condemn us for doing the same thing with our Bibles. And somebody needs to expose the absurdity and inconsistency, and sometimes we need to do it with a little holy mockery, like Elijah. Remember, Elijah mocked the Baalites. He showed them the foolishness and absurdity of believing that, that uh, the God that they said they worshipped was no God at all by making fun of him. That's what he did. He mocked their God. This is the pattern that we see throughout Scripture. Elijah does it. The rest of the prophets do it. Jesus does it. Paul does it. God does it. And why did they do it? Again, to expose the foolishness and absurdity of the unbelieving worldview that they are dealing with. Sometimes it's necessary to use a little mockery to do this. Sometimes it's necessary to say things that might be offensive or to say things that are cutting. Why? Because it really shakes people up. And sometimes you need to shake people 
to wake them up. Now, people will say that you're not supposed to do that because you're a Christian. You're supposed to walk around with this sort of indifferent smile on your face to anything that's offensive all the time. They have sort of this Pollyanna view of Christianity uh, where Christians are real sweetie pies and they never say anything that's biting. But is that the pattern that we're shown in Scripture? The question we have to ask ourselves is, are we being biblical Christians? Can we follow after the examples and patterns that are shown to us by the prophets and the apostles? Well, apparently the writers of Scripture think that we can. He read from James this morning. James gives us Elijah as an example to follow after. Now, I think we have to have some guidelines for this sort of things. Are we to be offensive just for the sake of being offensive? No. Uh, But if we say something offensive or mockingly uh, for the sake of showing the person the utter absurdity of the thing that they believe so that they might repent and turn to God, well, then I think it's a biblical thing. I think it's a right thing. It's good. People are going to say that you're unkind, that you're arrogant, that you're judgmental, that you're unloving, but it does not matter what people says. It matters what the Bible teaches. The Bible is our standard. It is not what people say. And moreover, truth is more important than kindness anyway. The most loving and kind thing that you can do is show somebody that they are wrong when they are believing something that is going to end in their destruction. Sometimes the best way to do that is with a little mockery, like Elijah does here. A good way to do it is by stepping into their shoes for a moment and saying, okay, well, you say that you worship this god Baal and he, he is a god? Well, why don't you cry out a little bit louder? Maybe he'll hear you. Maybe he's in the can. That's why he can't hear you. Right? He's in the bathroom. In our day, what are some of the ways that God has proved that he is Baal and... Uh, excuse me, that uh, he is God and Baal is not? Well, again... Uh, we've said this, uh, God is not normally showing up in uh, supernatural ways as he did here in the story of Elijah, but he's given us his word that is unchanging, that it's ever, that's everlasting, it's consistent, and it's coherent, and it is a standard for our lives. But all of the unbelieving worldviews that we run into today, you'll notice they are inconsistent, they are incoherent, and they are constantly changing. And what the world does is when you expose that or they realize that there's an inconsistency is they just adopt another unbelieving worldview. They take another one that's inconsistent. And, when, and it's when that, that happens that we need to step up and say, hey, let me try that on for a second. Let me try on your beliefs for a moment and see how that fits. The writer of the Proverbs says that you're to answer a fool according to his folly, lest you be wise in your own eyes, or lest he be wise in his own eyes. Answer him according to his folly. Step into his shoes for a moment and show him the absurdity of what he believes. For example, we could say something like, mean to tell me for certain that all religions have some claim to truth and that if we follow them all in the end, we'll end up in the same place? How do you know that? What, do you have some sort of a magic eight ball in your back pocket that reveals these things to you? Or are you some sort of a wizard? How do you know that? Where are you coming up with these things? And from there, we to show these, uh, which to show the pluralist, um, the person who believes we can follow many gods, uh, uh, that they're being just as narrow-minded as they claim we are being. But yet, they have nothing to appeal to outside of themselves. Uh, they have no ultimate standard. They're just saying it. Well, because I said so. And then you could say something like, who made you king? Why should we follow you just because you said it? And it is there when the pluralist worldview or the unbelieving worldview begins to implode on itself that you can begin to deconstruct it and take them by the hand gently and introduce them to Jesus, the true king, 
who gives them a word from heaven that is unfading, everlasting, and a sure foundation for everything that we say and do. But first, we must deconstruct the lie. Finally, I want to mention that Elijah destroys the prophets of Baal. Uh, Now, in this day, he did it physically with the sword, but in light of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we don't do it this way anymore. (laughs) Paul says our weapons are not... Our weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. And listen, with them, this is what we do. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Again, how are we to do this? We're at war with unbelieving worldviews, and we grab hold of them and we cast them down and show the utter absurdity and foolishness of believing these things. This is to say we make war with the Word of God, the Word of God is our sword in the day in which we are living. And when, when people hear the Word of God and they repent of their sins and they adopt a, a believing worldview, they convert from an unbelieving worldview to a believing uh, worldview, they die and become a new man in Jesus Christ. So we must preach the Word. We must destroy false arguments. And lastly, we must worship. When Elijah restored proper worship here in our story, the fire of God fell from heaven and the people of God were renewed. So when we worship God rightly in the way that he has told us to do so every Sunday morning, judgment and salvation comes to the church and to the world. And we need to remember that. Uh, when we worship the true God rightly week in and week out, we are proclaiming that the Lord is God and that Baal is not. That's what we do here on Sunday morning. The Lord is God and Baal is not. And when we worship God and worship God alone, The one true God, every other false God in this world is eventually dethroned. That's how it works. So in closing, we have seen that Elijah proves to Israel that Yahweh is God and Baal is not by going against the flow and doing what God told him to do, even if that labeled him a troublemaker. And he restored proper worship. He confronted the idols of his day with a little mockery, and he slaughtered the false prophets. And we, too, have been called to go against the current, and sometimes that means we will be labeled troublemakers, but that's okay. And sometimes we will have to confront the idols of our day, and sometimes that requires a little mockery. So let us be genuinely concerned to see the true God worship rightly in our day, even if it makes us unpopular, and even if that labels us troublemakers. Let's pray.